How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, sitting across from Michael, but glass in between us. How are you doing today, Dad? <laughs> you just busted us, yeah. yeah. Your old man's had COVID for the past three weeks, so we thought we ought to be separated by glass. Yeah, we're just trying to be safe. <laughs> Don't need you to get sick. But you did okay. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. I just, you know... Stayed home for the last three weeks and followed doctor's orders and drank a lot of water and tried to stay away from your mother and all good. And she's bulletproof. She has. She is totally bulletproof. People will ask, like, I mean, you know, my boys will be sick. Kids are so germy. They're constantly have runny noses and whatever. (laughs) And they're like, your mom's around them and she doesn't get sick. I'm like, I remember my mom being sick once my entire childhood. One time. And I remember her being in bed and she doesn't want anyone to touch her or be near her. Like, don't go check on her. Don't bring her things. Like, just leave her alone. And other than that, I don't think she's ever been sick. So she'll probably outlive all of us. No doubt about that. (laughs) And never go to the doctor. No, she hates the doctors. I know. In 40 years of marriage, I think about five times she's been sick. And That's amazing. Yeah. She's just got that German constitution immune system. She's 100% German, both sides it's like so. we need to get her blood drawn and pump it into our cells yeah, and yeah, see if yeah. that that does something. Sorry, for you us. didn't get her immune system. You got your whole man. Me too. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have been in the benchmark series, and we're kind of just jumping around. We're doing some election things, but I thought it would be a huge miss if we left the 10 question series and I didn't sit down with you and ask you these 10 questions. Have I asked you these, by the way? No. Oh, okay. We We won't do that on the show. Well, well, you could put it on. uh, I could. I could put it on no matter what. No matter what. That's true. On my podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should do that. Okay. We'll see. Okay. So dad, (laughs) you know the questions and I'm going to start. So the very first question you ask folks is always to describe their context, but I want you to define your context because people, of course, see, well, you're a pastor that stands on stage and you teach the Bible and you lead a church. But how do you define what are your contexts? What are your roles? Well, we just talked about this before we hit the record tape, whether I should answer this question or not. So maybe you should read the question so they know what it is. The concept of in context is about understanding the context in which scripture was written and how it applies a biblical worldview to our personal context today. So tell us about your context, Michael Easley. What are the contexts you live and work in? So I want to go back and tell a brief story. After somewhere between college and graduate school, I thought about going to med school. Actually, it was after seminary. I thought about going to med school. Yeah. And very long story short, I went through all the traps and I was going to take a year and go full time to undergrad and pick up some courses like inorganic chemistry and organic chemistry and try to get 4.0, et cetera, and then take the MCAT. And during that time, I had a lot of counsel from a lot of mentors, a lot of friends, and I had already done four years of college, a year of master's, four years of master's for the THM at Dallas Seminary. And I was in a local church for about two years, and I just did not think this is what I wanted to do with my life at that point. 
So medical school had always been in the back of my mind, but I was afraid academically. I was afraid of that much more schooling, the cost, et cetera. But I thought, you know, if I'm going to do it, I got to do it now. Yeah. So it was during that time that it really became a crucible for, are you going to stay in, quote, a church ministry, close quote, or are you going to be in a ministry in a different way? And I've sat with a lot of mentors, a lot of friends, most of them encouraging me to go to med school. Hmm. And there was one prof that people know I talk a lot about, Howard Hendricks, and we sat down at lunch and I was telling him my plans. And there were only two times in my friendship with Prof Hendricks, he was mad at me and this was one of them. <laughs> and I told him my plans all excited and animated and we're sitting in the, ironically, the Baylor Hospital had a nice dining room and I took him to lunch there. And he's eating his salad. He's not saying a word. His jaw's tight. And I'm getting more and more in about, Prof, I know you love medicine too. And I want to do like medical work and maybe do pediatric surgery and da 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 and, and after my pitch, he looked at me and he points vertically and he says, I know that guy on the seventh floor. I know what he's doing right now. He's not doing what you and I are doing. Referencing the surgeon was in surgery yeah. and living at the hospital yeah. and he and I were having lunch. So that became a very defining seminal discussion. And I drove back to Grand Prairie, Texas, half angry, half sad, agreeing with the prop that I needed to stay in a local church. Yeah. It was the death of a dream in some respects. My dad always wanted one of us to go to med school. So that infiltrated my thinking. And the shorter answer was I began to settle in. I have the privilege of being paid to study and teach the Bible. I don't want to be boring. I don't want to be a fat old pastor. I want to be somebody who can explain and teach the Bible in such a way that will compel people to want to learn, to study, to grow, and to become disciples of Christ. So that's what, you know, almost 40 years now I've been trying to do. And God's great kindness, I think he's blessed and used us in some ways. But at the end of the day, there are two things that are eternal, God's word and God's people. Yeah. And so I thought, well... I can hitch my wagon to teaching God's word and trying to encourage God's people. And maybe that'll be a good, quote, career, yeah. a way to serve the Lord and to serve his people. Well, it's funny. Well, it's not funny that you say that, but folks will ask me about you and, you know, because you can say my dad's a pastor, but that can mean a thousand different things. And, and I always tell folks, my dad is a Bible teacher and he's a discipler. And it really goes back to what you just mm -hmm. said. But I mean, that is how I see you. You are phenomenal. Anyone who listens to this, they listen to it because you're a great expository Bible teacher. And what most people, well, many people don't see is the discipleship component, unless they're part of that with you. But my whole life, I have seen you disciple men at all stages of life, meeting with them, leading, you know, small group contacts and pursuing deep, meaningful relationships with men that push them more towards Christ. And the other thing I would say about your context is, again, when folks ask me about you and what it was like to grow up as a pastor's kid and blah, 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 all that stuff, is while you are a Bible teacher and a discipler, there was never a day in my mind, the question never came up as to whether you prioritize mom and us behind the church and behind teaching and leading. I always knew that mom, that our home, our family came first. Mm. And I think that's a big miss for a lot of PKs is they grow up and they feel very backseated to 
dad or mom's ministry. And whether that's right or wrong or whatever, I think you have all of those contexts. I think you have balanced and prioritized really well. Well, the mystique of being a pastor, I don't want to be too indelicate, but I never liked the mystique or the idea of being a pastor. Mm. And a lot of that is because how we might view other pastors. Yeah. Growing up Roman Catholic, of course, you have priests and they are men of the cloth right. and they live a very different life yeah. than the rest of us. So that certainly infiltrated my thinking. But also the Bible teacher, evangelical pastors I was around, I may have admired and respected their training and competency, but it was something about, I don't want to sound icky, but, you know, polyester suits and, you know, just a little bit other than a pastor, they weren't really integrated. They yeah. weren't really people you wanted to hang out with. Yeah. The preacher was in the room, yeah. you know, we're going to have lunch. Well, the pastor gets to pray, you know, and I just I hated that whole it's probably unkind, but at this chapter of my life, I'm going to say what I think. <laughs> I just didn't like the persona of pastors. Yeah. And so, you know, whether it was right or wrong, I decided, Hannah, I'm going to be who God made me to be. Yeah. I don't mean that like an excuse. I should say that differently. I'll be the person I think I am. So, for example, I'm into cars. I'm into stereo systems. Yeah. I have hobbies. I worked for a living before ministry. I had lots of jobs, and I learned how to weld, work on cars to a degree. I wanted to be a normal person yeah. who happened yeah. to also be a Bible teacher and a disciple maker. But all that said, you know, my heroes, men that I looked to as mentors, I think also emulated that. Yeah. They were real. Mm -hmm. And in God's great, great kindness, probably the greatest affirmation I've experienced in this whole 40 year of being in the ministry has been people say, you know, you're not like any pastor I've known. Yeah. And I like hearing that. Yeah. I also like hearing when they say you're real. Uh-huh. Yeah. I didn't set out to do that. Right. I just didn't want to be that personification of, you know, the pastor everybody treated yeah, a certain differently. way. Yeah. But you did set out. I mean, it's interesting thinking about we moved to Washington, D.C., and you and mom were not into politics. You did not understand the military culture. And y'all went in day one becoming students of that culture mm -hmm. and fell in love, of course, with the military yes. culture, but also fell in love with politics. Mm -hmm. And that became a passion of y'all's. You moved to Nashville, I think get a harder learning curve for you, no but doubt. you went in and you want to understand the music industry. You wanted to understand creatives because that was the church body that you had. And so anyway, I think you worked hard to not just be who God created you to be, but to also really know folks on the level of who they are in their context. Yeah, well, yeah. And that to me, is, I kind of attribute that to your grandfather, Joe Easley, because he never met a person he wasn't interested in. Mm. And he could talk to anybody. Yeah. It drove me nuts as a kid. And I may have driven you nuts as a kid. <laughs> but he could talk to anybody. And I look back on that with appreciation that I saw it modeled. Yeah. Everybody is important. Everybody yeah. is an individual, made in God's image. Yeah, that's right. And I can remember him talking to a guy, of course, growing up Catholic, we had mass every day for many years. I was an altar boy and I'd be trying to get home and he'd be talking to some, you know, homeless person trying to get money after the 6.15 a.m. mass. And I'd be wanting to go home and he'd be talking to this guy and he'd give him 10 bucks or whatever. Yeah. And he wouldn't give me 10 bucks. Right. <laughs> he'd give this, this homeless guy 10 bucks. And we get in the car and he had that chortle laugh of his. And he go, well, it was worth the 10 bucks just to hear his story. <laughs> <laughs> but he saw people with dignity. Yeah. And I think that was 
more instrumental in me, the way mm. I view humanity, mm. than maybe not. Mm. Wow. Okay, so going back to our questions, what has been the greatest challenge in your own spiritual journey? When I ask this question to other people, I know the response they give, and I get the same response. That's a hard question to answer. <laughs> I would put together a mosaic, and I remember Dr. Tom Parker, who was a friend and a counselor, PhD, also at Dallas Seminary, had a private practice. And I remember talking to him one time, and he said, Michael, you put together a mosaic, like a pantheon mm. of people. Mm. Your dad, your brother, because Steve's my older brother, and he's brilliant, and number of professors and people that I won't name. And he goes, and they're over your shoulder looking down on you and you were trying to get their approval mm-hmm. as you live. And I went, yeah. And then he took his hands like he was holding, you know, something arms wit and he pretended like he was breaking into on his leg. And he goes, I'd like to smash that mosaic into a thousand pieces. And Hannah, I literally, my heart it skipped a beat. I went, mm-hmm. no, like, no. And just by my reaction, he laughed at me. And he goes, until you understand that, you're not going to be who God wants you to be. And that was hard because these were people I admired and respected and people that maybe I was looking for their approval. Maybe I wanted to be like them, probably a combination of all the above. But that was a very liberating and uncomfortable moment. And I remember you know, how deeply that impacted me. I can't tell the story, right? But that was a big turning point to say, you know, God can use you as an individual. You don't need the approval of these people that you look at. One of my my Hebrew professor, Dr. Alan Ross, who I still admire, stinking brilliant guy. And I'll never be Alan Ross. (laughs) I'll never be, you know, one one thousandth as good of the Hebrew text as Dr. Ross is. But that imprint, mm. I wanted to be like that. I mm. wanted his approval. Mm. Ain't going to get it. Yeah. Ain't going to be him. Well, maybe God does want me to be a Hebrew professor. That's right. So that was probably the biggest challenge that I could look at from a defining trajectory standpoint mm. of, okay, God's given you certain gifts, abilities, talents, strengths, weaknesses, or my sin nature, et cetera, that I own. He's given me other things. What am I going to do with them? And that was a challenge, trying to dial into that, not this, you know, gestalt stuff or some spiritual inventory, but how has God made me, gifted me, wired me, and how do I then live this out? So that was a challenge, and I would say that took me a few years to sort through. Yeah. Wow. Okay, what about, do you have a favorite book of the Bible or a favorite verse or passages that you go back to over and over? Again, so much of it. I mean, I hate to isolate it, but Galatians 2.20 was probably one of the most, again, defining moments. You know, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And I still remember reading that in college, Hannah, because it was one of those verses where the light went on. Hmm. And it was like, whoa, some of it with my Armenian background, Catholic teaching, you know, you do your part, God does his part, kind of dualism almost. Right or wrong, but that's what I learned. You have to do your part. And that verse liberated me from saying, no, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith hmm. in the Son of God. I can't make the flesh better. I can't do better apart from by faith in the spirits and dwelling in me. So that verse perhaps was one of the more, 
you know, seminal ones in college, others later in life. Favorite book is going to be a tie between Ecclesiastes and Romans. Hmm. Ecclesiastes was a book that, again, Hendricks used to challenge us to do something each year that threatened us or stretched us intellectually. And so I had read through the Bible, you know, on the year plans many times, and I never really liked Ecclesiastes. <laughs> kind of like, oh, this book's weird. And so one year I said as my goal, one of my goals, I was going to read through Ecclesiastes for a month every day. Well, that continued for two months, three months, continued for three years. And the little red Bible that I lost yeah. from Walter Reed back to Virginia, I'll never get over. I had three years of notes in that Bible written with a rapidograph in the Hebrew and my observations about Ecclesiastes. But I just fell in love with that book, and I saw things I'd never seen. And, of course, teaching the book of Romans, I studied it in college. I listened to it on sermon tapes from S. Lewis Johnson, Charles Swindoll, Bill McRae, I forget how many different two saint may have taught it. I took a course in seminary in Greek with John Grasmick on it. And the more I studied Romans, the more I fell in love with it, taught it, never finished the book, taught it when I was in Emmanuel, Emmanuel, but we moved where I could finish. So yeah, a tie between Ecclesiastes and Romans. Well, it sounds like after we finish the big book, you need to do Romans (laughs) and Ecclesiastes. I forget how many months I was in Romans up to chapter six, and some woman in the church wrote me an email saying, at this rate, it's going to be 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe she was grateful when you left. Yeah, yeah, probably. (laughs) No, no, she wrote me later going, when are you going to finish Romans? (laughs) So probably never. You know, Donald Gray Barnhouse has a four or six volume. I've got them at home, cloth-bound books that you or Jesse will get, but it's his commentary on Romans. And the first introduction, he tells this story about, he wrote articles for the newspaper. He preached two and three times a week, plus his main church. He was in great demand and he traveled around. And in those days, you put your books in trunks Hmm. and Barnhouse had his commentaries in several trunks and he would take them on the train and have books spread out in his berth and study the whole time all day. He was a medical doctor turned pastor. And they were giving him grief because he was kind of writing, you know, it wasn't tightly edited. It wasn't maybe written real well. Mm-hmm. And he writes in the preface of the commentary to Romans about his critics. And he says, this is what I do every day, how much I study, how many times I preach a week, you know, 10, 12 hours a day in, in the Bible. And he said, basically, if you can do it better than me, you can do it. But then he said how much time he had been, I want to say, I'm going to be wrong, a number of years he'd been in Romans, and he was only like up to chapter 6. This was at the 10th Presbyterian Church in Pennsylvania, if I remember correctly, Philly. And he said, if I had one life to give, I would give it to the book of Romans. Wow. Wow. So it has that effect on people when you start really studying the details. This was probably when you were teaching Romans, but I have memories of getting in the car with you. You were driving, I was on the passenger side, and you'd have me pick up a eight and a half by 11 that had a chapter of Romans on it, and it would be laminated, and you were memorizing the book of Romans. Do you still do a lot of scripture memory? or I don't. Shame on me. Every once in a while, I kind of rekindle that idea. Your mom and I were memorizing books for a while, and I remember memorizing Romans 6, I have pretty well down. I could pick it up quickly, but that's something I need to reinvigorate. I think it's the navigators have a thing with your hand. I forget all the Each finger has something, but when you memorize something, you can then meditate on it. 
And that's where the real gold mm. comes. But thanks for calling me out on that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> hey, people need to know. They need to know you're not perfect. Uh, that doesn't take much time. Okay, <laughs> after the Bible. And now we've talked about this on an Ask Dr. E, kind of. But mm-hmm. what two, three books outside of the Bible have been particularly impactful yeah. in your life? A.B. Bruce, Training of the Twelve. Yep stands out. And again, that's why I tell people this, they don't listen to me. I tell them, don't try to read it by yourself. You'll never finish it. It's Arcane, written in 1817. Alexander Balmain Bruce. You don't have to buy it now. It's public domain. You can pull it up on a PDF from 100 places online. But what he wrote in that time period, it's just remarkable about how Jesus discipled the disciples. Secondly, and it's become a new love, it's Augustine's Confessions. And as I joked, I had to read it in seminary, but I can't prove it. (laughs) And I have my hard copy right here. And I have a Monday Augustine group, and we uh, WebEx, kind of like a Zoom, and we get together with a bunch of smart guys who are good thinkers, and we read a book a week. We try to. It ends up being two and three weeks per book. But to think this guy lived in 347 AD and what he wrote about the human condition, some have said this is the second most important book after the Bible. Wow. Some have said he is the next Paul without the apostolic moniker. Hmm. So there was no Roman Catholic Church, so to speak. There was the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And so Augustine's Confession. So I would say those two. And then, you know, any book on theology, you know me, I've got a host of them. We interviewed Phil Carey. I'm reading his book again on theology, and I just love thinking theologically. Mm. So books along that line. What is one of the biggest lessons you've learned at this point in your life? Well, I think it's be the person God wants you to be and be gracious toward other people. I think it's so hard in life. I was talking to a dear friend about my age, how, you know, I'm 63 and unfortunately you can't speed up maturity or learning. I think you can discourage it. You can be lazy, but I just don't think you can learn. Unfortunately, things that you learn in your 50s, 60s, God willing, 70s, 80s. So at this chapter of life, it's trying to be comfortable, and I hate the cliche, but this is who God made me, not as an excuse, right. not as a, you know, give me a free vowel, but, you know, this is who I am. I'm not a neurosurgeon. I'm not a Peter. I'm not a, you know, nuclear physicist. I'm just a preacher and a theologian and a guy that tries to love and disciple people. And then I was joking with someone in our church, it's just a couple of years old now, I said, we're a bonafide church now because people come late (laughs) and we have problem people. (laughs) So that's when you know. Yeah, yeah, you know you're a church. And we were laughing about it. And I said, you know what? My perspective on problem people is different today. It used to be they irritated me or I wish they would leave or I don't really care to talk to them. To be these are the people that God has brought to this particular local assembly and I got to love them. Mm. And that doesn't mean I'm going to fix their problems. It doesn't mean that they're going to change. It doesn't mean that they won't always be somewhat of irritation or just interesting. But to see them the way Christ sees them, Mm -hmm. that Christ died for them. Someone told me years ago, not new with me, the ground at Calvary is level. And I need to look at people that way. And I think in God's kindness, I see people that way now. Mm -hmm. I would say one other thing is the value of real friends. And we've talked about this before too, but I've got 
five or six guys. Some of them I've known. One guy, George Bocorny and I have been friends for over 50 years. That's crazy. Who has some friendship like that? And then some of my other men friends were 30 plus year friendships. And they're like brothers. Yeah. Scripture says some friends are closer than a brother. And these men are. Mm. And just cultivating that. And now you're really reaping the benefits of that. But you're also getting older. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be burying each other, which is sort of a tragedy. But that's how this works. Okay, so you have been pastoring, discipling, mentoring all the things for decades. What is one thing that you would long for every believer to know, to do, to live? Get your nose in the book every day. I just, and this is probably my most negative observation of the Christian community, is I do not study the scriptures. They live on experiential theology. They live on the, you know, I mean, my view of life, their passions, their desires, and even I use that language sometimes. If we don't have a constant exposure to the text, we just don't have a mooring. So I I would want them to know the Word of God. I want do to get in it. And then don't think you really can integrate biblical knowledge unless you're living it out. And that takes lots of forms, but the easiest form is are you in a group that's you know, becoming more like Christ. We can call them small groups, offender groups, discipleship groups. I don't care what you call them. But those groups need to be grounded in the text, not some popular book, not some Enneagram, not some, you know, study de jour. Those are fine. But are we really in the word in those subjects? So So for the person that really doesn't have a daily habit of being in the Bible, Mm -hmm. where would you encourage them to start? You know, we often say start in the Gospel of John, and that's a great place to start. I like to ask people, what are you interested in? Mm. Are you interested in creation, evolution? Are you interested in the end times? Do you know if you're really saved? Pick a topic, and then let's go to the text and find a book or a passage or passages that talk about that. So that's thinking from a biblical theology lens. Yeah. I had a man who was not a believer when I met him, and in God's kindness, he came to Christ over the course of time, but he was a scientist, and he was empirically based, and he could not understand creation. He was an evolutionist. Yeah. He was a billions-of-year-old guy. And I just got him onto some topics about creation and intelligent design. And there was a book called The Waters Above Canopy Theory by Joseph Dillo, old moody book. And I started reading those with him and reading the Bible. Hmm. Well, it just opened up a world to him. Hmm. It wasn't that long of a time period. He said either the Bible is true or our observations of science and the way we measure repetition is true. And that was the scripture teaching him. So an area that you're interested Mm -hmm. in, and I think that helps. The other thing I would say is don't be too hard on yourself. Even if it's five or 10 minutes a day, it's something. Mm -hmm. And you've heard me say this over and over. It's not that you have to, it's that you can. It's not that you should, it's that you're able to. This is a privilege. And to open that text with the mindset that I'm going to stop have a cup of coffee in the morning. I'm going to rest. I'm not going to turn on the phone or the email or the technology or the news. I'm going to read my Bible for a few minutes, start underlining verbs, start making some notes in the margin of a Bible. You know, I'm a big proponent of a physical book mm-hmm. and just start reading and see what God will do. Greatest disappointment in your context? Oh, I would distill it into the category of power in local churches and leadership in local churches. I've been involved on staff in one, two, 
three, four churches now. And I've been involved as a lay person in two other ones before seminary. And I would say, you know, the power falls everywhere. And to understand Jesus' economy and the power in the local church is a dilemma. Every pastor I know goes through it. And it's heartbreaking. It's frustrating. It shouldn't be that way. It's his church, not mine. Whenever a pastor says, my church, my skin crawls, it's his church. And I think it's just been disappointing watching other churches go through it, churches that I was a part of and left and went through it, churches I counseled. I did a little bit of church consulting for a period of time. I'm not very good at that. No, that's wrong. Don't do that. (laughs) You know, my opinion, you know, fire that guy. No, I'm not good in those roles. But that's probably been in ministry proper. The most disappointing thing is that good people cannot separate their own emotion and their own prerogatives and Mm -hmm. look at the greater good of are we teaching scripture? Are we making disciples? To me, it's pretty simple. If you're teaching scripture and you're making disciples and you're being a good steward of the resources, meaning people and money God gives you, you don't have to worry about much. Yeah. And churches get off on these things over and over and over again. And that's your father getting old, but that's the biggest disappointment. What about personally? Personal disappointment. Well, five back surgeries hasn't been a walk in a park. No, it hasn't. I mean, this sounds a little dramatic, but death. Yeah. You know, losing people. Some deep, deep friendships and mentors that are gone. Rarely a day goes by. You don't miss them. And I can only, you know, imagine a parent has lost a child. But, yeah, just watching death in other people's lives and then experiencing it in my own with people. It's, you know, God hates death. And it's disappointing to watch it. All right. What about greatest encouragement? And let's do ministry and personal again. Ministry's got to be when somebody gets it. I'll call out a guy named Andrew Fanning, who's in my Augustine group. Andrew and Laura were a young couple when we started this marriage group many, many years ago. These young men, and to watch them just blow up spiritually and lead Bible studies and, you know, get degrees and take some seminary classes and be elders in churches. If I do get to the Eeyore mode, looking oh, poor people, (laughs) I look back on the Kyle LeClaire's and on the Andrew Fanning's and I just bless God that those guys, now truthfully, they'd have got it without me. Yeah. Truthfully. Yeah. But to feel like you had a little part pushing them in the right direction. Yeah. That just gives me joy. And then when any younger guy or even a peer calls me with a ministry challenge or a problem, it's very humbling. Mm-hmm. You know, when some guy says, I want to pick your brain on this. Wow, mm-hmm. I'm happy to, sir. I don't know that I have any answers, but I'd be glad to, you know, sit in the dirt with you for a while. Yeah. Put it at a principle. It's people's lives who were changed. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably the greatest encouragement. Yeah. I think about people calling me saying, hey, I want your advice on something. I'm like, great, because I've got it for you. <laughs> like, I probably know the answer to your problem. Do you think you were like that at 36? Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay, oh, okay. Yeah. that's oh, good to know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and sometimes you do. And I don't I mean, always. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I but know no, that. But sometimes you do. For example, I have a friend that's gone through a divorce not long ago, and he's already dating. And I love him. I love him like crazy. And I told him, you got no business dating. Yeah. He don't want to hear that from me. I know I'm right. Right. He didn't want to hear from me. Yeah. I told him he should wait five years. He looked at me like I was from Mars. <laughs> I still love him. But, you know, so certain advice is, you know, and again, if they know me, <laughs> right. why are they asking me well, this question? that's what I say, too. I mean, I'm like, you know what I'm going to say to you. So I don't really understand why you're calling me. But I'm grateful because I will be the one to give you the truth that 
feels like a you know slap across well, the head. And sometimes they're complicated. I mean, you know, yeah. we've had some approach your mom and me with things we're scratching our head going whoa that's one i hadn't heard of before you know sure okay what about greatest encouragement personally i can probably tie that back together you know your mom and i just did that program a while back which we've gotten such kind responses from people that have known us but 40 years of marriage you know i know some of our friends are older than us and have been married longer but I look at your mom and I go, I can't believe we've been together 40 years and I love her this much. And she loves me and she puts up with me. And we both have very different patterns of life and jobs and ministry. But that's probably my greatest encouragement is your mom. And you and Jesse and your husbands and your boys, you know, family becomes not to get maudlin, but the older you get, it becomes more important. You know, we love being with our family. We love being with your boys. And it's a riot. So, yeah, those are all encouraging things. Do you think you and mom have grown more similar over the years? Or do you think you've grown? I mean, obviously, you grow as one the longer you're married. But have you become more different? I just imagine at like 25, 26, I don't know. I think I was a softer person. That was only 10 years ago. Like I think I've become more and more defined about who I am. I don't think we're more alike. I think we know who we are. Mm-hmm. And we have very different opinions, Mm -hmm. and I think that's okay. I think that's probably what makes our marriage fun is that we can agree to disagree on things and not be, you know, it doesn't affect our love. Right. You know, she thinks I'm wrong. I think she's wrong. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I would say I think I have tried to foster her to be who she is, and she would say the same for me. She's tried to let me be, yeah. you know, the person God. The yeah. most effective person you can be is the person God designed you to be. That's right. And it's not an excuse. That's an acknowledgement of gifts, talents, abilities, strengths, interests, and using those for God, not for yourself. And I think your mom has done that really well in real estate. I could never do what she does. And she's so stinking good at it. And she's so successful at it, helping people. And I just shake my head and go, wow, I can't believe she does that. To answer your question, I think we know who we are and we respect each other's differences, but we still love being together. Yeah, that's fun. Okay, if you could write a letter to your 18-year-old self, what advice would you give? I would probably tell myself to not be so perfectionistic, to not be so hard on myself, to rest in God more as opposed to try and make things work or work in the flesh, I would tell myself, you're going to do things you never dreamt of doing and to keep your humility about it and to trust God no matter what your experience or circumstance tries to tell you. Mm, I think everyone needs to hear that today. Okay, final question. What do you want your epitaph to say? You know this. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let the world teach you theology. That's right. And if it's not too expensive per letter and the headstone's not too small, (laughs) get a label maker. You can put it on there after I'm dead, Hanny. (laughs) Do you have any hymn requests at your funeral? You know, I actually have the whole thing written out in a Word document. I figured figured that was... But I probably won't ever give it to anybody because I think a memorial needs to be about not the person that's dead. It needs to be about the people who are there. And it needs to be about, you know, whether it's your children or grandchildren and, you know, how they, you know, view losing their mother or grandmother or dad or grandfather, how their friends view. And I think it's also, you know me, I love doing funerals more than weddings. Yeah. 
and that's not because I'm a morbid person. Maybe. It's uh, <laughs> it's because it's the one time people are facing death, and you got to pay attention to that box. Yeah. you got to pay attention to it. And that's why it's uncomfortable, because we don't know how. And so for me, it's really what's the message you want that captive audience to hear. And they're going to die as well. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you got no hope. If you know Christ, this is not the end. And it's just the beginning for that person that's gone. And then it's how, as the faithful behind, how we live with that greatest disappointment, burying our friends. You know, I woke up one day, and I was a teenager. I woke up another day, I was in college. I woke up another day, I was a husband. I woke up one day, I was a father with you. Years later, I woke up, had four children. Woke up one day, I was a pastor of a gigantic church. Woke up one day and I was at Moody. Woke up one day and I was filling in the blanks. And you wake up one day and realize, this is the only day I got is today. And you done it again. In your 60s and 70s, your mindset changes. Jean Hendricks, whom I talk with from time to time, is in her 90s. And she's indomitable. Her spirit is strong. But I know she's older. I know she's lonely. I know things have changed for her. And no one is unique in that regard. So to me, the life of faith, whether it's a memorial or an epitaph or a funeral service, ought to be, sure, you can celebrate the person's life, but you're facing your own mortality. So what are you going to do with the day he's given you? Well, Michael Easley, thank you for being my guest (laughs) on Michael Easley in Context. No, really, Dad, thanks for your ministry. I'm just grateful you're my dad. I'm grateful for our friendship. I'm grateful I get to work with you. I have to stop talking so I won't cry. (laughs) Well, as you said, we have that tear umbilical cord. (laughs) That's that's right. The second I can barely tell you're about, no one else knows you're about to cry, and I know. Not even your mother, frankly. No, she doesn't care. She doesn't doesn't care. (laughs) Buck up, buddy. What's your problem? (laughs) Well, for a shameless plug, speaking of Michael's epitaph, Don't Let the World Teach You Theology, we got some new merch that says, Don't Let the World Teach You Theology, on some coffee mugs, some tumblers, some t-shirts, some fleece you know, three-quarter zip-up so you can wear his epitaph or drink your coffee in it. <laughs> Every morning, I got an epitaph in front of me. Yeah. All right. Hey, maybe we should put like a little gravestone. No. <laughs> a little Christmas ornament. Hard pass. Together. Y'all, this is what working Michael and Hannah looks like working together. He has an idea and I think yeah, absolutely I like not. I like this. Absolutely week. not. I hate Halloween, but we could come up with a little Halloween no. ornaments. No. <laughs> Folks, we will be back. Cobwebs, spiderwebs. This this show needs to stop. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We'll see y'all next week. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.